Welcome to episode 231 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Kim K.C. Campbell. Kim is a retired Air Force colonel who served in the Air Force for over 24 years as a fighter pilot and a senior military leader. She has flown 1,800 hours in the A-10 Warthog, including more than 100 combat missions protecting troops in both Iraq and Afghanistan. She recently released her new book, Flying in the Face of Fear, where she shares aspects of her 24-year career and the lessons learned. In this interview, we talked about her time in the Air Force and some of the challenges that she faced and I got a chance to read Flying in the Face of Fear and we covered a lot in this interview that is not actually in the book so I'm really excited to share some of her experiences and highlight her story this week. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Kim. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and we're here because I got a copy of Flying in the Face of Fear, and I really enjoyed it, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your experience in the military and beyond. That's awesome. I hope you enjoyed the book, and um, it, you know, it's exciting to kind of share some of those stories. I think what I've realized throughout my career is that so many people share their stories and their lessons learned, their experiences with me, and I realized how much it had an impact on me. And so the book is a little bit about giving back and sharing stories and lessons learned with others. Yeah, I really liked your vulnerability of like sharing like really hard things that a lot of things that people don't really want to talk about, like motherhood, and even flying in the face of fear. I mean, the title you talk about fear a lot. And I think you just did a really good job of showing the humanity of who you were and just really deep into the emotions of the experience, which is why I think the end points of like at the end of each chapter, you talk about like the lessons learned, they hit home because we had so much of your story. So I thought it was really good. Thank you. I think what I've learned is that the hard times, the most challenging times, right? The times where I made mistakes or failed or experienced struggle, those were also the times where I learned the most. I don't necessarily want everyone to have to go through those experiences, um, but I, you know, I think I can share in the lessons learned by just sharing the story that went with it. So I realized that if I wasn't going to put it all out there, if I wasn't going to be vulnerable with it, then why write the book? I mean, that really what it comes down to. Yeah, I've learned a lot about writing books and your readers can tell when you're like holding something back and even if you can't tell when you're writing it. So you did a really good job of sharing those stories. So for this podcast, we're going to start like we always do with why did you decide to join the Air Force? I actually decided uh, back in fifth grade for me uh, that I was going to join the Air Force. Um, it really came about because I wanted to be an astronaut and that was back in 1986. Uh, for me, the watching the space shuttle Challenger as a child, there was something in that moment. Obviously, that you know, the first 72 seconds of the launch was just this thrill and excitement, this experience with flight and watching it, and I was so excited. But then to watch the devastation that unfolded after that, you know, 
I can't, it's hard for me to even understand it because even at fifth grade, like I just, I was so upset by it. I was, I felt in some way connected to the astronauts, even though I didn't know them personally, but it was this understanding of that they died doing something that they believed in this goal that they really believed in something that was big and important and bigger than themselves. Thankfully, I watched that with my parents and and talked to them a lot about it. But I decided that I really wanted to be an astronaut. I thought that that was something that I wanted to do. And my dad had also been in the Air Force, was an Air Force Academy graduate. And he he told me that, you know, he said a lot of those astronauts were pilots and a lot of the pilots had gone to the Air Force Academy. But I don't think when he told me that he had any idea or belief that that's actually what I would go do. But that's when I decided. That's when I decided I was going to go to the Air Force, become a fighter pilot, um, and then ideally someday go off to be an astronaut. And did you kind of have the idea that you were going to attend the Air Force Academy when you had that idea, or did you not have that figured out yet? No, that was part of it. That was all part of it. I, After talking to my dad, I decided uh, that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. And honestly, going to the Air Force Academy for me was like, I just, I don't think I really knew what I was getting into at that age. And I, I mean, it took me a long time to figure out, like, I just wanted to go to the Air Force Academy and become a fighter pilot. Like this idea of commitment to service was there, but I don't think I really grasped it. I don't think I really understood the significance of what it meant to serve until I got there, until I took the oath of office, until I started realizing what this career was that I wanted to go do. I think over time and over my 24 years of service, obviously, the commitment to serve really meant something more than just going to the Air Force Academy to become a fighter pilot. Yeah. And I really liked how in the book you talked about, like you were really detailed in that experience about how you kind of had to like shift your focus in like high school to get, you know, like the fire underneath you so that, I mean, getting into the academy is tough. And it was interesting to hear how like you kind of like changed everything and you set that goal and then, and then you accomplished it. And, and then, well, and then I guess I really want you to, I'm like, should I share it or should we wait for the book? But like, at first you didn't get into the Air Force Academy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to get in. It's a very competitive school. And I, you know, I did everything I could. I mean, I, like you said, I flipped a switch. There was something that happened when I made that decision. I just completely switched. I was so focused on school and getting good grades and my SATs and athletics and you name it. And I felt like I had done everything that I could. And then to get that initial rejection letter, which was like devastating. I mean, it's when you pour everything that you have into something and then essentially you're told, um, these are my words, it's not good enough, right? And and the letter was nicely worded and said, it's a competitive process and please try again next year. But I kind of read it as, you know, thanks for trying, but not quite good enough. And that was really hard. But I also think that learning from that and having kind of that initial rejection and failure really taught me about perseverance. And, you know, I could have quit then. I could have decided to go somewhere else, but I didn't want to. I mean, that my heart wasn't in anywhere else. And so I just really um, committed to getting in and writing the Air Force letters every week (laughs) to let them know that I had worked harder, I had done something new, eventually that I finally took the ACT instead of the SAT, which for me was um, a game changer in terms of my scores. But it was this idea that like, if you really want something, you got to go after it. And sometimes you are going to face rejection, you're going to be told no. And if you really, if it's something that you want, then keep after it. 
Yeah, I think that's a theme that I've heard on the podcast is you can't just take the initial rejection, especially like as a woman in the military. A lot of people are going to tell you no, but you can, if you really want to do something, find someone else who will say yes. Like keep pushing that door, push, you know, try and find someone who can, you know, read the regulations, make sure that the person who's telling you no can actually say no to you and find out if there's another person or another way to move forward. That's something that has definitely been a theme of the podcast. Yeah, I think, you know, you will at some point face, you know, you'll you'll hear someone say no or you'll face rejection. And it's all about what do you do in that moment? You know, and it is okay, like if you decide it's, you know what, maybe this isn't for me and I'm going to take a different path. Like that's okay as long as you've fully thought through it and your heart is in it. But otherwise, you know, you're right. Find somebody else. Find a different path. You know, keep writing letters. Whatever it takes. If you're, if that is what your heart says, if that is your goal and your dream, then just keep after it, even though it's hard. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. That I love that you added that. It's not like, oh, that was easy. <laughs> nope, <laughs> it's not easy, and it's hard. It, I think what's hard about it is like it's a, it's a blow to your ego. It's a constant like you're when you're facing that uphill battle, it can be really challenging. I think the other piece of that is having a support network, having people on your team that believe in you, that will challenge you, that will support you, that will, you know, be by your side through that difficult time, I think is really important too. Yeah, that's really great. So let's talk a little bit about your time at the Academy. Are there any highlights or experiences from your time there that you want to talk about before we dive into active duty? You know, I think um, I think every experience is what you make of it. I mean, I, I worked very hard to get into the academy, so I was very determined that once I got there, I was going to essentially, in my these are my words, you know, prove that I belonged. Um, and so I worked really hard to get in there. I worked really hard when I was there, and I took the opportunity to take on some additional leadership positions during my senior year at the academy, and had the opportunity to be the cadet wing commander, so in charge of all four thousand cadets. That was a that was a huge challenge because being in charge of your peers is really hard. Um, and also, I didn't really, you know, I learning. I didn't really know a lot about leadership. And here I am in charge of four thousand cadets. And you know, I didn't do everything right for sure. I made plenty of mistakes. I think the probably the biggest thing from that I learned from all of that was this idea of sharing success and owning failure. And um, that really served me well throughout my time as a commander and leader into the operational air force. The other key lesson I think I learned from that was that, um, you know, it's a good idea to always have a reason behind doing something because we had a lot of things that we were doing initially at the air force Academy in our training that there wasn't really any good reason behind it. And it was this, always this idea of asking the question, you know, why, why are we doing this? What is the goal? What is the purpose? What are we getting out of it? And again, I think those early lessons in leadership and, learning from really um, experienced leaders around me was really critical. And I wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I didn't kind of raise my hand and say, and put myself out there and, and, you know, put my name in the hat, if you will, to give it a try. Yeah. And just thinking about your book, there were times that you asked that question over and over throughout your career. And sometimes people were like, well, that's the way we've always done it. And you were like, that's not a good answer. And I, I think that's interesting that it came all the way back from being a cadet at the Air Force Academy. And right. That's the answer I gave to the general officer was, um, be, well, we, that's, sir, that's the way we've always done it. <laughs> I kind of got this curious look from him, like, do you think that's the right way to do it? And it just has stuck with me. And I've realized in helping lead teams and larger teams that 
when I asked those questions, sometimes the initial answer was, well, we've always done it that way. And then as you kind of drill down in, you realize, hey, you know what? There might be a better way that's better for our airmen, that's better for our resources, you know, you name it. But sometimes we just get stuck in this rut and it's comfortable and it's the way we've done it. So we're just going to keep doing it that way. Yeah, for sure. So you graduated. Now I can't remember the year. What year did you graduate? 1997. And so women had been allowed to be fighter pilots since 1993. So was and that was like right around when you started the academy. So it kind of changed everything once you were in. I, yeah, I didn't know about, you know, when I made this goal dream of mine in fifth grade, I didn't know that women weren't su- supposed to, women weren't allowed to be fighter pilots. Um, my parents didn't tell me that. I figured it out over the course of the four years or you know, so of time that I spent, you know, researching it, learning about it in high school specifically. I realized that women actually weren't allowed to be fighter pilots, but thankfully that rule changed. And by the time I graduated from high school, women were starting. Uh, to take that track and become fighter pilots. So by the time that I got to pilot training, there definitely had been, there had been women who had come before me, you know, had broken those barriers, had gone through some really difficult times, quite honestly. Um, So I'm thankful that they were able to do that, that they were able to kind of share their stories and their experiences. And, um, you know, I was still the only female in my fighter squadron when I showed up. uh, So the, the numbers were still not high, but I wasn't the first. But it's still early in the, I just, yeah, I just think it's interesting to like learn that history because I didn't know anything about that until I started this podcast. I mean, but even like when I was in the Air Force, I didn't know that there were roles that women couldn't do because that like never came up as a barrier when I was in. And then when I deployed with an infantry unit and I was like, I can't be in an infantry unit. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And especially since I was attached to it, it really didn't make sense to me. But I think it's important to talk about like how those things change and like how the women who break the barriers for the next generation of women, even not even a generation, the next class of women, have a huge role to play. I, Nicole Malowski was on the podcast and she talked about how she had to open the door and or she had the opportunity and then she wanted to keep it open. And so it's the same type of thing. Yeah. Nicole and I have known each other since we were 12 years old. We were in Civil Air Patrol together as, as kids. Um, so it's really cool to see her success and what she's done. Um, and I completely agree with her. I mean, I will tell you that when I went into my fighter squadron, knowing that I was going to be the only woman, the only female fighter pilot anyway, I really put a lot of pressure on myself because I felt like if I did something wrong, if I made a mistake, if I failed, then I would close that door. And it was just, that was the pressure I put on myself. That wasn't necessarily pressure that other people put on me, but that's how I felt. And so I just decided that I was going to go in, I was going to be as credible and capable as I could in the airplane, that I would work really hard. And I was just hoping that that would be enough. And it was, I mean, the guys in my squadron, you know, I, realized I knew many of them from my time at the Air Force Academy. And they really just became my brothers. I mean, they looked out for me. I had proved that I was capable in the airplane. They didn't, they really didn't care about the difference. I think it was a little bit uncomfortable at first and that they just didn't know how to act around me. I even remember one of the first pilots that I flew with, um, he was a little bit older. um, We'll put it that way. And he just said, Kim, I've never flown with a girl before. And I could tell he was just uncomfortable. Like he didn't know what to do. And I was like, well, sir, I'm going to sound a little bit different on the radio and I might look a little different. But other than that, I think we're going to be okay. (laughs) So, 
it was just a learning experience for all of us. But truly, um, I loved that fighter squadron. It was my very first fighter squadron. These guys were my brothers. We deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq together. And it was just truly, I look back on that time as some of the greatest in terms of camaraderie and mission in terms of what we were able to do as in all of my time in the Air Force. Yeah, and you, so you graduated and then didn't you go and get your master's and then you went to pilot training. So by the time you graduated pilot training, when was September 11th in that time frame? Yeah, I, so I had gone to graduate school for a couple of years, um, then went to pilot training and then went to A10 training. It's a long process. And when I was in A10 training, which is a six month program, uh, at the end of that, um, so I was uh, in A-10 training at Davis Monthan Air Force Base when 9-11 happened. And, um, you yeah, know, I think we all knew. I think that was a turning point. We knew that our lives as Air Force officers, as airmen, as A-10 pilots was going to change dramatically. Um, we finished up our A-10 training with a bit, of, a bit of a pause initially, finished up our A-10 training, and I moved to Pope Air Force Base to join the 75th Fighter Squadron. And that was uh, late December of 2001, and we deployed a couple months later for Operation Enduring Freedom in early 2002. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your time in both Iraq and Afghanistan, because you deployed, like, back to back. Like, there were so many deployments and so many different experiences, so... We don't need to talk about all of them, but I know that there are some like key stories that you highlighted in the book, and maybe there's more stories that you want to share. So can you talk about what that was like to be on that high ops tempo deployment? You know, I think it was initially exciting, right? It was everything that we had trained to do. It was, we didn't want to be left behind. We, if especially after 9-11, it was like we knew we could make a difference. We knew if the troops on the ground were going that we wanted to be there because we knew our role, we knew we could make a difference. Um, and so initially it was kind of this excitement um, of going to deploy and do what we've been trained to do. I will tell you that first initial mission to Afghanistan, our deployment there was actually very quiet. I mean, by the time we got there, it had really quieted down and we did a lot of convoy escort. It was almost, you know, eerily quiet. Um, you know, we would do a lot of just being overhead of convoys. Um, initially, it was a little frustrating, if I'm honest, because I think we felt like we weren't doing anything. And then we, after we talked to some ground troops and, you know, after one mission where we had a convoy that didn't have a qualified controller and just, you know, the, there was this fear of ambush and IEDs weren't a thing yet, but, um, you know, there was just fear of being ambushed and being out in this really difficult terrain. And, we kind of got the feedback, hey, just by being overhead, like you make a difference. Like it gives us confidence in what we're doing. And it, that changed my perception completely in terms of what we do and our mission set. So that first deployment was very, very quiet, you know, in terms of being an A-10 pilot and supporting troops on the ground. It was, you know, we were busy. We were constantly flying, but very little ordnance was dropped. It was all about being overhead. But that mission and that deployment uh, ended, and then we turned around very quickly because of what happened in Iraq. Um, and uh, hard to believe that's been 20 years, um, that we, we turned from that mission, and, I, and it was the same thing. We wanted to be there. We wanted, you know, once they said, we're going to send a fighter squadron to Iraq, it was like, send us. We want to be there with the troops on the ground. And um, it didn't really matter at the time that we had already just gotten home. I was married at the time, and my husband was also an A-10 pilot. 
Um, so he understood completely and we were um, happy to go, I guess. We were, we were thankful that we were chosen uh, to go. I want to make sure we come back to this because my mindset has shifted a little bit on those deployments. Um, The happy and the exciting isn't quite where it is um, today, but back then that's how we felt. And um, I was, you know, it was all about being there to support our troops on the ground. Um, Iraq was a lot different because a much higher threat level all the way around. And uh, that deployment, um, I think, really changed my outlook on deploying and Yes, we still wanted to be there if the ground troops were there, but I think now the reality of losing people in combat, the reality of maybe not making it home, I think all of that really set in on this deployment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2010, and so it was like when I was in ROTC, Afghanistan, like not really much was going on, and then, you know, all this, all the things were going on in Iraq and it was, and then it kind of Iraq died down, and then Afghanistan started to go a little bit crazy, and so, yeah. And we're recording. I mean, this isn't going to go live today, but we are recording on the twentieth anniversary, which is kind of like that wasn't planned. It's, <laughs> no, it's it's, it's a very, significant day. Yeah, it is a significant day because I think our you know our lives changed because of that conflict because of the people that we lost, you know, the friends that we lost in that. And so, yeah, my mindset, my mindset has shifted completely in terms of, I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I had the, the friends, um, that I went through it with, but it's, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, I don't think we ever want to go through again. Yeah, for sure. And I think when it started, we never realized like how long it would last and it's the 20 year anniversary and we just finished, you know, last year and a half ago, you know, 2021 was the end of Afghanistan, which was where like everything, you know, came up from. And so that's another thing. It's like, it was so long and people who were serving felt that pressure, but like the rest of the country, I don't think they understood exactly what the military was going through. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we all experienced it in, in very personal ways. I think whether you or not you agree with the conflict from a political perspective, I think that's not what we look at, right? We look at our brothers and sisters that we were there with. We looked at we had a mission to do and we did the best we could in those missions. And, you know, we lost our friends in the on the way. And that's, I think, what we remember is that that we did the best we could. We did what we were asked. We did our mission we did it exceptionally well, um, and we did it together. Yeah, and in the book you talk about, I mean, you face danger. And I I told you before we did the interview, I was on the ground, and, like, there were pilots in the sky, and they felt so safe, and I felt so, you know, like, it, close to danger. But you had a lot of, like, different, not just, like, I mean, you got shot at, and, like, you had to, that was a crazy story. But you also, like, the danger of flying just like spatial is it spatial d like um i had a friend who died in f-16 plane crash from that and so when you were talking about that i was thinking about what he must have experienced when you were talking that like that was that really hit home because i i think sometimes we think about like fighter pilots and it's so cool but it's also really dangerous not even just like being in war adds extra danger but just the danger of like flying and 
there's so many things that could go wrong. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, in everything that we do, there is risk. I realized, you know, very quickly that a lot of our risk, I mean, we we lost pilots in training um, just as much as we lost them in combat during, you know, my time. And um, and that was always really hard. We lost pilots to spatial disorientation. You know, we lost pilots to um, various things in training. And that, you know, that's hard um, because that's, you know, you don't think of those things happening. Um, but I think that being said, we always tried to learn from every experience along the way. We do operate in this high risk, high stakes environment. But I think especially like as A-10 pilots, I feel like our ground troops are the ones out there really doing the work. We're, we're a support asset. Um, and we know that you all are putting your lives on the line. And so we are going to take extra risk um, to help ground troops out. I mean, it's just that's our that's our mindset. That's our mission. So when we hear troops in contact, when we hear you know danger close, anything like that, where troops on the ground need our help, they need it quickly. Like we are going to take that extra risk, and you know that risk could be the terrain, it could be the weather, it could be getting shot at, it could be all of these things. But we, that's what we train to do: is take that additional risk. It's calculated risk. We understand what we're doing, but when the ground troops say troops in contact, it's like it's a it's a flip of a switch for us. Like now we know it's it's um, critical that what we do matters and we need to get in there quickly and we are going to accept additional risk. I mean, I just remember whenever there was like trouble, we the the pilots would show up and then they would like disappear and it was always it was so nice to have that as like a backup and something that we relied on. Luckily, we weren't in very many tight spots, so it wasn't too often, but even like knowing while we were on the ground, even if there weren't, you know, there wasn't close air support, because we never really had it on our missions. But knowing that if we did get in a place where we needed it, it was there. And just hearing like you guys being on alerts and like, you know, you guys were eating and you were like, we got to go. And you didn't even have time to put because, I mean, that's I, I just it was really eye opening to read about that experience as a yeah. ground troop. Those alert missions were always very interesting because it was like you never knew. I mean, and it was at a moment's notice. Like you said, we could be in the middle of the at the chow hall and we're like, we're out. Uh, you know, it was, you just, you never knew what it was and you'd get as much information as you could as you're making your way out to the airplanes. And then it was just like, here's the coordinates, go, here's a frequency, go. And it was, you know, you'd show up and you didn't really know necessarily what, what was, what you were going to find. I mean, was it a huge firefight? What, you know, what was it? What was the situation? Um, and that, that really taught me a lot about being flexible, but being prepared for anything, you know, just that preparation that we put in in advance was so critical because it was this whole unknown that we were always facing. Yeah. And so you and your husband were like deploying back to back to back. And then you kind of were starting to get higher up in your careers. And is that when you guys were thinking, oh, let's start our family? Because I thought it was interesting that for a long time, you guys didn't have kids. I, my husband and I waited five years and people were like, why are you having kids? I'm like, because I'm in the Air Force. I'm busy. <laughs> like, yeah, we waited 10 years. Um, and a lot of that was because of, you know, 9-11 and the constant deployments after that. And we were just not in a good position to be parents. So we, we waited um, for a long time, I think, until we were ready, until we felt like we could be good parents, although I, don't, I think you could potentially wait forever if you <laughs> on that one. You know, we just felt, we waited until we felt like the time was right. And for me, being a fighter pilot and flying in a fighter aircraft, 
that pulls G's, uh, the, it, I knew as soon as I was pregnant, I wouldn't be able to fly anymore. And so that weighed on my decision as well. And trying to time that, you know, <laughs> trying to time it as best I could is, is really why we waited. So it, you know, it's worked out. It's great now that, you know, my kids are in um, elementary and high school and I am retired and I have more time to spend with them. So I think everyone makes a decision based on, you know, what's right for them. And this is what worked for us. Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree. I think you can wait and wait and wait and you're never actually ready. You just have to kind of like take the leap of faith and hope that it'll all work out. Yeah, hope that you do all right. (laughs) So what was that shift of, I mean, dual military and then having kids? It's very complicated. So what was that shift like? I think the shift more than anything was priorities. I mean, I think, you know, we, we deployed a lot. We were, you know, we spent a lot of time apart when we were first married because of our mission and what we were doing. Um, you know, and at some point we were like, okay, enough of that. We're ready to actually be together and have a family. Um, you know, it took 10 years to figure that out. Uh, but we, we really reprioritized in terms of what was important in terms of assignments and understanding that because we were both active duty, we were both A-10 pilots. He was a couple of years older than me. So there, you know, we were just sometimes at different places in our careers, but we understood that we would have to make some sacrifices. And so I think we each made sacrifices along the way. We always talked about the assignments and you know, it, it turned out as like, you know, you have these great assignments in your mind of places that you want to go and they'd be really great. And what we decided was what was most important is that we were together. You know, we would take the assignments that were less popular so we could be together. Um, so we spent, you know, time together in maybe less ideal assignments that were maybe not as good for our careers because we just, we wanted to be together. And we realized that you know, raising kids is really hard. It's even harder when you're a solo parent. And um, so we, we did as best we could to stay together, to take those assignments where we could be together to raise our kids. Yeah. And you talked about in the book that some people like put one person's career above the others. And you guys decided that like your main focus was to stay together and like, you know, move forward in your careers, but not like make one person take the back seat. And so I thought that was really interesting because that's the advice I was given as a cadet because I was married or I'm still married to someone who's in the military and we were dual military. And they were like, at some point, one of you is going to have to take a back role. And I like that. you're No, that's actually not true. You can make it work. Well, you know, we um, it was it was all good intention advice. Right. When people told us that it was just and it was based on their experience, which is what advice is. Right. So it's it was based on their experience and what they had seen. And it was like we we just kind of acknowledged when they were like, you know, someone one of you is going to have to make a decision. And I honestly always felt like it was me that they were looking at me going at some point you're going to need to support your husband part of that was he was more experienced he had been a weapons officer so and he was a little bit older so it was just kind of the natural progression and i think you know we both talked about it we were like could we get out could we go to the reserves or guard you know what could we do we had a lot of just open conversations and what we realized is that for either of us we just we both wanted to keep going and keep doing what we were doing we both wanted to take on some leadership roles that we enjoyed it we love flying. And we were just like, well, noted, you know, your advice is noted, but we're going to do our own thing um, until we didn't want to anymore, you know, until it didn't make sense. And, you know, we hit that point. It didn't make sense anymore. We, you know, we got to the point in our careers where it was, it was too much. It was too much um, for us as commanders, both of us (laughs) as commanders at the same time and young kids. And we just realized that 
that was the point where we we had to change our path and change our priorities. Yeah, I like that. I like, I mean, the advice was well-intentioned. It wasn't like advice that they were trying to like sabotage. It was no, like, not at all. yeah. And you have to take the things that you get and adapt them to make them work for you. Yeah. It's all about choosing what works for you. So we talked a little bit about your time as a pilot or as a fighter pilot. And then afterwards you got to do like more leadership roles. And one of the you know, one of the things that you got to do, which I thought was really interesting because I was a civil engineer. So um, mission support group was like my thing was to stay together. You got to be a group commander for mission support. And I thought the mission and what you guys were doing was really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, that was, um, you know, that was one of those assignments where we looked at our options and the best thing was for us both to go to Davis Monthan Air Force Base. And my husband was the wing commander and I took on a role as a group commander, but I couldn't work for him. Uh, so instead I worked um, for the um, numbered Air Force commander. And as a group commander, I was responsible for all of our airmen in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. But these weren't pilots. I mean, these were engineers, these were firefighters, these were air traffic controllers. And, you know, so some of the, some of the career fields I knew a little bit better just based on my own experience. Um, and some of them I got to know really well, just because I love the opportunity to spend time with my airmen. I mean, I think looking back, like those are some of the best times of, you know, trying to learn from them and learn their experiences. And our engineers, our dirt boys, uh, took me out uh, to teach me how to drive the front loader. And I had the youngest airman up there showing me what to do. And, you know, it wasn't like I was going to go do anything with it. It was more just learning what they were doing and how they did it and what resources they needed. But it was so great to, you know, get out of my comfort zone, you know, put that ego aside because I might do something, you know, that maybe isn't great. But I learned so much just by getting out, walking around. I mean, I got to go in the burn house with my firefighters and got all suited up. And moments like those, when I look back on my time in command, those to me are the best times of just spending time with my airmen, you know, out of the office, learning from them, hearing from them. I really learned a lot, I think personally and professionally both. Yeah, for civil engineer officers, we spend a week at Tyndall, our last week of our like tech school training, and we get to go and like learn all those things, like learn how to use a front end loader, learn how to like, you know, back up a semi truck. And we got to go in the smokehouse with the firefighters. And it was so much fun to like learn all that stuff. And then it really helped as like an officer, you know, like, I was at the shop and they're like, can you drive that thing? And I was like, oh, yeah, I did actually learn how to do it. And my friend, he was like, the airmen were like, whoa, just because they like didn't expect me to be able to drive a front end loader. But because I had gone through that training, they were like, oh, she actually knows what's going on. And so I, I really enjoyed hearing about that because it just reminded me when I was a second lieutenant getting to do those things. It's a good reminder for young officers to get out of the office, get out of the email, get, you know, just walk around, talk to your airmen. Like, and I mean, this honestly is for any career field and any leadership role, because you got to get out and walk around and like, find out what people are doing, find out what their, what their struggles are, like, where are their pain points? What can you do to help? And you don't learn that from behind a desk. You learn that out talking with them on an individual level, like just really getting to know people on a human level. Um, I think those, to me, that's where I learned the most. That's where I got really understood what was going on in the unit. 
Yeah, and the airmen love it when you're out there and they can see you and, like, you know, and they just get inspired. I mean, I had such great conversations with airmen who are considering, like, you know, becoming an officer and, like, they could ask me questions because I wasn't behind my desk. I was actually out, you know, I wasn't helping them because I'm not very helpful, but, you know, just being there and able to talk to them and hear about their experience and learn about what they were doing. It was so... I know that you guys were thinking about getting out of the military and then something came up and you ended up going somewhere else. But is there anything before that that you wanted to talk about? No, I think it's the, you know, I think this is something every military member at some point in their time, whether it's short or long, faces this question of, do I stay in or do I get out? Um, And we thought about it many times over our 24 years for me and 25 years for my husband. I mean, we thought about it, you know, at the 10 year point when our commitments first came up and it was just this constant analysis of like, were we enjoying what we were doing? Was it, you know, were we enough that we wanted to stay in? And when we just, it was always a little bit of a struggle of between kind of this personal life, professional pull and how do we make it work? But yeah, we finally hit the point at um, later in our careers. It was after I had done group command and my husband had done wing command. And it was just, we were exhausted. Our kids were tired. It was just, we hit kind of a point where we loved, we loved the jobs that we had, but it was taking its toll on our family. And that's when we decided that it was time. It was time for us to retire. And we talked about one of us staying in or one of us getting out. And we just realized that we felt most comfortable with the decision for both of us to get out that it was it was just what felt right. And so we made the decision to retire and then <laughs> and then the Air Force pulled us back in uh, in a very positive way. The um, Air Force Academy, um, the commandant reached out and asked, um, said, I heard <laughs> I heard you're thinking of retiring. Can I ask you to reconsider if you could please come back to the academy and help with this, you know, the next generation of leaders and how do you turn that down, right? It was an opportunity for us to do what we love, to do something we were passionate about and keep our family together. And so we stayed another few years and then we both decided to retire again uh, after that two years. And then uh, the superintendent at the Air Force Academy asked if I would stay an extra year. Um, this was about 10 days before my final out-processing appointment. I, I mean, I had done everything. I had done all the medical. I had done all my paperwork. I mean, we were so close. And he asked if I would stay to be the director for the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the Academy. It was like the one job I would not turn down because it was this great opportunity to spend a year, again, doing something that I was very passionate about and helping to inspire and teach this next generation of leaders. So I said yes, after much deliberation, quite honestly. I mean, it wasn't an easy answer. I think part of it was because I had made a commitment to my kids. I had talked to my kids about retirement and that it was happening and they were excited, but it was also COVID. And I talked to my son who was, I think, 12 at the time. And I remember, you know, just sitting down to talk with him and say, here's what, you know, here's what the three-star general asked. What do you think? And we talked through it and he said, mom, I think it sounds like a, a good job and you should take it, but for only a year, you know, only a year so that when COVID's over, we can go do all the things we've been talking about doing as a family. And so I, I kept that commitment to him, even though it was hard. I mean, it was still hard to make that decision and, um, and walk away from it all. But it was the right decision for my family. And I've learned that you can still give back and you can still serve even outside the military as well. 
Yeah, I love that story of including your kids. I mean, when they're itty-bitty, obviously you can't talk to them about it. But as they get older, having those conversations, like talking to them. We just moved recently, and and we've talked about like how hopefully this will be the last assignment and we don't have to move. And he understands because he's had to say goodbye to friends. And like he understands the sacrifice. And instead of just, you know hiding that and not talking about the future we talk to him about like what's going on what's the plan for the future and all the different things that happen and even like some of the trauma from my deployment has come up in negative characteristics and so I've talked to him about like why mommy does some of the things she does and like and we have like these really grown-up conversations but there are conversations we need to have so that they can understand like why not that it's healthy for me to do, and I'm working on that, but, you know, to be open and honest and share about what's going on so that they can know and and just be part of the conversation. And so I think as, like, moms and dads, it's really important as your kids get older to bring them in to the conversation so that they can understand and be a part of it. Yeah, I think... You know, we were told so often in many of our discussions about whether to stay in or retire about, you know, their people, this kind of the standard response was kids are resilient. You know, they'll get, they'll, they'll survive. Kids are resilient. And, and I believe that, but to a point, and I, I felt like I saw in my children this point of like, we might push them too far. Like, you know, all of a sudden you find out they're not resilient, but you know, it, you don't know. And maybe until it's too late, it was just this like really struggle of like, I just went with my gut of like, I see in my kids a struggle right now. And you know, they're, they're pretty young at the time. I mean, I remember my, my young son and I think he was maybe three or four. And he said, mom, when are we going to be a family again? And I was like, Oh, like dagger through my heart. Like I, he said that not to be mean, just out of like curiosity of like, we're not really together as a family. Like, when is that going to happen? And it's things like that, that I just, you know, you get to a point where you, you make the best decision for you and your family. Like nobody else is there living that family life, but you. And so people will give you advice. They will tell you things. And in the end, you go with your gut and what feels right. And you have the conversations with your kids, if that feels right. And, you know, I, I, I do believe our kids can teach us a lot of things. And so sometimes having those conversations with them can really help us make decisions and help us really see what's most important. And I love that you talked about, like, you have to do what's best for you and your family and, like, no one else is walking your life. So, I mean, they can give you all the advice in the world, but they're not you and they're not in your situation. So you do have to do what's right for you. But I also um, we kind of jumped over the academy. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what it was like to be back with the cadets, especially during COVID, which is a really hard time, I mean, for all of us, but especially... I mean, at the Academy, I know that there was a lot of challenges that kids faced. Yeah, I, you know, it was so great to go back, honestly. You know, the Academy is one of those experiences, like, that's a one-time good deal. Like, (laughs) it was really hard. I didn't ever want to go through it again. But I loved, I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, I met some of my best friends there. But coming back was really, it felt like life was coming full circle in many ways. That's where I met my husband. That is, you know that's where I got my start. That's kind of where my career in the Air Force started. So to be able to come back and then, you know, share those lessons, share my experiences with the cadets to help them on their journey was really just a great opportunity to spend time with them, um, you know, in the classroom, sharing kind of 
obviously from the academics standpoint, but then what does that mean for them when they graduate? You know, what can they take with them? Uh, so I really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to give back, to share what I've learned along the way. It was, you know, for me, when I stopped flying the A-10, it was really hard because that had been like my why. That was my purpose and my passion for almost 20 years. And to to stop that was hard. But I found that coming back to the academy, like this whole new passion and purpose of giving back to the next generation and of influencing and teaching was really powerful. It was just a, such a great experience. And so I really enjoyed it. That's why I stayed that extra year as well. But I had the opportunity to fly down at the airfield and teach cadets how to fly and get them excited about aviation or have them realize that it wasn't what they wanted to do and find a different path. And that is okay too. But it was really for me, life came full circle um, to give back a little bit in a way that so many people gave to me. Yeah, I love hearing that. And I loved like... It is really hard to get out of the military. It doesn't matter if you've been in for four years or 25 years, like getting out there. I just I felt a lot of the same emotions that you talked about of like, what am I going to do now? Like, and then you're like, oh, there's my whole life. There's so many other things that I can do. And obviously, I'm really passionate about giving back and I'm sharing our stories. And so I that really resonates with me. And so I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think I mean, that's it's a gift in many ways, the people that were willing to share their stories with me, you know, and they shared stories that weren't always positive, right? Where they did things wrong or it didn't work. And that vulnerability and having the courage to be vulnerable in that I think is huge. Um, And so I feel a little bit like a responsibility in some ways, because so many people influenced and impacted my life in a positive way that I want to try to do the same. And that's, you know, that's why I love what you're doing with this podcast, because it is about sharing stories and experiences. So people feel like they're not alone, like they're not the first person going through it, or maybe some little spark or something that we've said can help people in in some way. For sure. And they can go get your book if they want to hear more. (laughs) Yes, they can get the book if they want to hear more. I mean, I would obviously love that. But also, um, to be able to reach out, like I, um, I love when people reach out through, um, usually through social media, LinkedIn is a big one, but just to ask questions. And, you know, just I, you know, so many people ask, you know, answered questions for me along the way. And so I'm, I love to be able to, to give back in some way. So please reach out if you're listening and you have a question that we didn't cover. Yeah. And I have all your social media links and a link to your book in the show notes so that people can reach out if they would like to. And then I always like to end the podcast with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering military service? Well, I would say that first, it has to be something that you want to do, not somebody, not something that somebody else thinks you should do. Um, but I would say if you're passionate about it and it's something that you want, then go for it, but put in the work, like put in the work to be credible, to be capable, work hard. I mean, honestly, this is advice for anyone, not just a young woman, but anybody going into, you know, something new is put in the work, you know, and it's not always going to be easy. You're going to face challenges. You're going to face rejection. You're going to face failure. You're going to make mistakes. And so it's all about what you do in those moments. It is about being afraid and doing it anyway. It is about getting back up again when you get knocked down. Um, but, but put in the work. It's not going to be easy. Put in the work, uh, be credible, work hard and, and try to maintain a good attitude. Such great advice. I think, I mean, the fact that you mentioned over and over, like, it's not just because it's not easy doesn't mean that it's not the right thing. I think sometimes people are like, oh, it's really hard. It's like, yeah, it's supposed to be. (laughs) It's not supposed to be easy. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
sometimes the hardest things, the most difficult things are where we gain the most, you know, and we grow the most um, because we've realized that we can overcome hard things, that we can do hard things, and it makes us better and stronger for it in the end. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed getting to have you as a guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.